welcome to DevCast, brought to you by Devril Smith, the right people. DevCast is where property meets people, industry figures, news and views, what it takes to be your best. So sit back, earphones on, and enjoy this edition of DevCast. Hello and welcome to DevCast, Devil Smith's podcast where we explore themes, trends and all things real estate alongside influential leaders and figureheads from the industry. Our guest today is none other than Anna Keir, CEO of Tonic Housing, a pioneering organisation that aims to create self-welcoming and affirming housing options for the LGBTQ plus community in their later years. Um, she steered Tonic Housing towards remarkable successes pushing boundaries, breaking down barriers along the way. So without further ado, let's welcome Anna. Anna, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. I've been looking forward to this for such a long time. I can't wait to dive into um, into the tonic housing story. But before we do, I kind of want to dive into your story a little bit, if that's OK. Yeah, that's fine. You just told me on the way in here, born in Worcester. Yes. <laughs> I won't mention what you told me after that, but maybe you could give us the, your formative years and growing up. Oh, well, I remember Worcester in terms of um, a lot of my parents' family were there, so we used to go back. But um, my parents left Worcester when I was three and moved to Kent, so most of my formative years were in Kent um, until I left there in 1985 to go to university in Bath and have lived in Bath since then. And you studied, you studied, what did you study? I've, I've read your CV and I've managed to forget already. Is it... um, I studied home economics. Um, I had glandular fever when I was a teenager and so I didn't go to school from the age of roughly about 13. Um, so I had home tutoring and had to do, I did a much reduced curriculum. Um, and my family um, thought that it was going to be unlikely that I was going to get uh, sufficient grades or sufficient number of um, O levels and A levels to go to university. So um, they, my passion was cooking. So my grandfather had very kindly set up for me to go to Prulis School, and thought that that was a good way of you know circumventing that issue and getting my career launched. Um, I kind of surprised the family by actually getting a reasonable number of O-levels and a couple of A-levels with good results. And I got myself a place at university um, in Bath to do home economics. So I kind of wonder what my life might have been like had I gone to Prulis <laughs> instead of taking that route. Because doing home economics got me really into housing, which sounds a bit odd. Yeah. But if you break it down, it's about the economics of the home. So housing was uh, an integral part of that that study. Wow. Well, is cooking still a big passion? Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> you can't really take that out of you. Can no. you? Kind of a foodie at heart. So, yeah, very much do that. But that's um, a, a hobby passion, not a career passion. So so, so you're, you've just made the connection there between home economics and uh, the world of housing. So, so maybe you can talk. What what happened? You got you you qualified. You got a you got your degree and time to get a job. I'm guessing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, yeah, I my interest had gone down that route um, rather than the kind of more sciencey food 
technology side of things. Um, so I was looking around. I was not working for a little while. And then um, a job came up in a um, homeless uh, accommodation. I won't say a, 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 a shelter because it was actually... Um, we had some very temporary immediate units, but most of it, it was a converted whole terrace in Bath. And a lot of the um, accommodation within that where people could stay up to a year. So it was almost like transition from street to actually getting people into permanent housing and taking them through those kind of steps that, that, that were needed, which sounds the nice clean version. It was actually age 21 it was very hard work and very challenging well i was just going to ask you i mean could you share some of the stories and what it taught you and how that how that shaped your career i suppose i think it taught me really on the importance of collaboration and working with others so for example working really closely with um, the women's refuge um, other homelessness organizations the local authority um, you couldn't really do anything on your own and also that's kind of um, it's usually very small staff numbers in organizations like that so you find your colleagues in wider yeah. networks than just in the organisation. So it really was a very good grounding in that way. It also made me um, understand that housing, yes, it is about bricks and mortar, but fundamentally it's about the people experience. And, um, you know, a lot of people there with um, drug and alcohol issues, with mental health issues, you know, and the trauma of mm. homelessness as well. So, um, you know, it's, it, it was seeing it in that holistic way that was really important for me, sort of making my next steps. It's a pretty intense way to enter the workplace, isn't it? It was, yeah. <laughs> I lasted nine months. Did you? <laughs> yeah. And then what? After that, I decided I did need a little bit of distance. It was shift work as well, so I used to have right. to do overnights and, and live in. Um, and uh, I decided that I needed a little bit more um, boundaries around my sort of work life. So I actually got a job um, for a local authority as a homelessness officer. So again in homelessness, but more structured office hours and um, really operating the homelessness legislation that had come in and actually assessing applicants, managing their moves into temporary accommodation. Um, and in that time, I think, you know, we had lots of issues with mortgage repossessions. You know, it's, it's yeah. very much... Um, a, um, so uh, were we late 80s? Yeah, exactly. And kind of the, the, the effects of the market from that. And we had a lot of people who'd bought their council houses, for example, yeah. and then were coming to the council... Um, saying you know, they couldn't afford that. them. Exactly. So there was a lot to deal with. We had to increase our volume of temporary accommodation. Um, I was kind of very passionately involved in that in terms of, although I wasn't doing the, the development and acquisitions myself at that time, I was very involved in from being a human perspective that people, you know, needed to be in family units, not to kind of be, and they needed to be safe, yeah. not, not split up. Um, and... I, I worked I worked there for about two years and in that time um, work, I remember putting a paper forward it sounds really arrogant now but I was just like seeing lots of things that were going on so I put a paper forward to CDM management 
to change the the way that we worked and to actually set up a homelessness prevention service rather than an emergency reaction service. And so we changed the service and we did a lot of interventions then in terms of going to court and challenging those eviction warrants, you know, looking, trying to Mm. to capture it earlier and seeing if we could actually prevent the the trauma of having to be made homeless. So that's really, really interesting because very sadly here we are in 2023, we were just talking about a trip you've been on recently and homelessness. I mean, it's still here and it's still a problem and it's still horrific for those that find themselves in that situation. Do you think that paper that you wrote 30 years ago, the recommendations, do, do they still they stand the test of time and, and do you see them actually much more commonplace or are we repeating the mistakes of the past? Um, I think they probably do. I don't have a copy of it to look back at. Oh, well, I do. <laughs> oh, gosh, no. okay. Um, and... I, you know, I do think the principles of that, you know, are applicable. I, I don't, you know, I, I might be controversial in saying I don't think we're going to eliminate homelessness, mm. not in the way that our, you know, housing systems work mm. and that we are, you know, affected by so many issues in that. But I do think we we need both a reactive emergency service mm. and also some planning and prevention and we need to kind of think about pathways as well and the 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 barriers that are there in the systems that you know result in effect in failure because it is a failure when people are on the streets of course and just on that theme do do you see that it's a a nationwide problem i.e we this the state if you will are as inefficient and ineffective everywhere or some some councils um centers you know areas of the country have they, have they got a better grip of it than others i'm i'm no longer an expert on homelessness yeah. so i won't kind of you know <laughs> say think. that i i've got my finger on the pulse of exactly what's going on but you know obviously there are areas where you know um particularly cities where you see more street homelessness mm. and you've got you know a, a greater increase in the problem you've you have got a problem also in other parts of the country and it's quite often hidden homelessness and 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 um, you know people sleeping on sofas and things like that yeah. um i think we've got housing shortage as well so you've you've got all that sort of obviously as part and parcel of the issue and then a shortage and the cost of temporary accommodation. So, you you know, it's complex in managing all of that. But the bit that I would always go back to is the human element of it. Put yourself in the perspective of every single person is human and think about what it's like for them and the pathways that they need. And I know you have to work within limited resources but I think sometimes we lose sight of that in our systems-driven yeah. approach. So, where are we? Uh, early 90s now, and your next step of your career was from homelessness to housing associations, am I right? So after, you know, I suppose, almost three years of doing homelessness directly and then through the local authority, um, I felt that that wasn't really going to be 
where where I wanted to be for the rest of my time. I was very aware of it, mm. but that wasn't going to be my skill set. And I wanted to be, I suppose, part of the solution, the housing solution, and part of um, contributing to increasing housing supply. Um, and that's how I um, I joined an organisation called the Rural Housing Trust that was um, very innovative at the time. Rural exception sites had only just come in as a result of the campaigning work of the Rural Housing Trust. And therefore it was a, f a fantastic opportunity to join when all of these local rural housing associations were setting up. There was um, grant funding available for development. Local authorities were willing to work with us and help provide sites. Um, and I joined and I remember um, uh, a car, turn again, small organisation, a car turning up with literally cardboard boxes full of files saying, there you are, get on with it. And it was a working from home. They didn't even have an office. They had a London office, but not local as I was in Bath then. Um, and we had four developments on site. So I had to get up to speed very, quickly. very quickly. <laughs> yes. And 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 if I roll the clock forwards, you've you've covered almost everything in housing, from what I see. I mean, big, small, councils, different, all the different facets and functions of of the housing industry. Um, so I want to go jump straight into tonic housing. I mean, how did that happen? What 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 was the catalyst? What was where where did the idea come from? How did it come together? Okay. Well, tonic is not my idea, not my baby at all. Um, it was very much a concept of our founders and our founder board members um, that they um, from from their experience and also their questions of um, you know I'm getting older what's going to happen, I don't like what the choices are out there on the general market. It's very heteronormative, quite scary actually in, in some mm. cases. And particularly the experience of, of Jeff, one of our, um, our, our former chair, um, of his partner having a degenerative disease, trying to find um, wheelchair accommodation mm. um, and also appropriate care. And um, the story um, we, we have actually, you know, he's been on BBC TV to, to explain um, what, it, what it is. But, you know, I still, you know, find it quite difficult to recite his story of, you know, um, a carer coming in and actually praying for his partner's condemned soul at the end of his bed for being, for being gay. And, you know, the pain that that must have caused such a vulnerable person the pain it caused Jeff and the guilt that in his bit of time out as a carer that was actually happening until he found out what was happening and you know it's you realize when you break that down that 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 is a situation that can occur it can occur to a lot of people and they were so passionate about wanting to change that and wanting to provide safe choices and options for people um, that were really much more about celebrating your LGBT identity and be, being with your people so that, you know, it, it was kind of understood in terms of um, who you are 
mm. and not having to I think the term is you know not having to come out every time you want to have a cup of coffee and a chat with someone or explaining why you haven't got grandchildren yeah so that was really the the, the ethos behind that and the founders spent spent a lot of time developing the idea they even came up with the name tonic um, which has got a lovely story about, um, I think first of all, a tonic was called Pink Zimmer, which they decided maybe wasn't the great, <laughs> greatest brand name. Um, <laughs> so they, they, um, a couple of the founders put themselves in a, in a room and played a lot of um, 70s disco music, a lot of Donna Summer, yeah. with lots of whiteboards all over the place, writing different ideas, and they came up with tonic. Um, and was that I, because they were slurping the odd gin uh, whilst they were brainstorming or <laughs> I wasn't there couldn't comment but actually I think it's really cool because when I get asked to explain it I said well actually if you think about it tonic comes from a place of discrimination disadvantage um, loneliness isolation in the LGBT community it's pretty you know a, a, a bleak outlook and we are the tonic to that we are a place where people can be themselves, celebrate who they are, and it's a very we're very much in pursuit of the positive. So that's why I wrote the tonic. Um, although it is quite handy when you meet people, say you remember me, think of Jean. <laughs> we go with it. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I'm kind of staggered in a way that that you're the first. I mean, is a credit to you, huge credit to you, but. Had these communities kind of existed in an informal stru structure? Had, 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 I mean, we all know that the um, uh, you know we all know the demographics of our of our country in terms of the aging population and 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 and, and the baby boomer years that are, that that are reaching certain ages. So we know the need for accommodation to suit that community, and it seems so obvious to me I would have thought there's almost a market-driven force that somebody thought well hang about we can we can make some money here is that crass I don't... Um, it's not crass and I think a lot of people thought that's what tonic was right. um, just a, a market-driven thing mm. in fact tonic was always about being fully inclusive for all the different elements of the community whether you've been fortunate mm. or um, don't have any property or, or, or much income um, oh, it's a long story as to why it hasn't happened before. Um, we were just talking earlier about my um, visit to the States, and um, in the USA, unbelievably, they have se 17 schemes and are developing more and more, and they've got a really good finance structure to do this. So they use tax credits um, to enable the developments, and then they get government funding to run the services. It is quite, you know, astounding, because you know, I've always thought of, you know, oh, we're quite good with our kind of welfare state and stuff over here, but we haven't got anything <laughs> like that that makes it work for communities to do this. Um, the a lot of people have tried before tonic there was another organization called polari housing association that tried to do this in the 90s it was actually registered with the housing corporation um but if you think about the 90s we were in section 28 years mm. and um i 
really believe that from having worked through that period of time... And for our listeners who weren't there in the 90s, can you explain Section 28 how, and, and why that put a blocker up? So Section 28 was the um, uh, very controversial political um, decision of the Thatcher government at that time to um, not promote homosexuality in schools. That's kind of the headlines of it. But actually, the actual Section 28 was about not not using sort of public funding. So it also affected libraries, for example. You know, you hear stories, I was talking to um, one of the councillors at Lambeth about having to take all the library books off the shelves um, because they weren't allowed any LGBT books in the libraries. So it had much, it, you know, obviously the education piece was huge, mm. but it had wider ramifications from that. So the idea that any local authority would kind of support LGBT housing was just a complete no-no. Um, and that um, law wasn't repealed until 2003. Really? Yeah, so we're on a very long catch-up. And the reason I reflect in that is because being involved in housing development um, over those years, you know, I was very aware of... Um, older person's housing schemes that were specific for communities. You know, there was uh, extra care schemes for Chinese elders, for example. So it was completely recognised that in later living, people want to be with their people, you know, have their shared experiences. Of course. But And there was a lot of opportunities for small housing associations, you know, a good, reasonable amount of grants back in those days. Um, and also, you know, the, the opportunities to do these schemes. But the LGBT community missed out on that. And, um, and therefore, I think we're very much on a kind of catch up from that. Um, and we're on a, a cultural journey. You know, I, it is quite exhausting at times. I find I have to be a, a translator to the straight community, to the housing world, as to why this is needed. For people, really? I know, yeah. <laughs> For people that get it and understand it, it it seems so obvious. But so many people don't. They don't understand what it is like to say um, be very lonely and isolated, and not want to go into a general needs sheltered housing scheme, extra care scheme, where you know you you'll be fearful of other residents. You know, whether that is, um, you know, fearful of homophobia or just fearful of being lonely and not fitting in because you don't have the same life experience. Which defeats the whole purpose of, the, of a later living community. Exactly. So, it, I don't know what you, you call it, whether it's your product or your environment or your service, but what, what have you designed? What can one expect? You've got a lovely building just south of the river which is an area close to my heart. My, my first, I lived in Vauxhall for a long time. It's my first first flat, so I know it really well and, and I'll always love it. So t tell us about what you have created. So you asked me earlier about the, the tonic story and I kind of gave a snippet in terms of the founders. So what, what the founders did when they put this together, they also put together a community panel. So not everybody wants to sit on a board and have the formality of that or the responsibility of that. So in order to get input from lots of different experiences, they set up our community panel. And that really shaped what Tonic 
was to look like. It yeah. was that those skills and experiences around the table. And I call it when I came in, because literally I did come in just as the, you know, housing developer person that could kind of try and translate those wishes into reality. Um, it was like a shopping list and we kind of went through and I said, okay, can we kind of prioritize this a bit and work out what's really, really important? Yeah. They said, you know, number one priority was this, well, it's kind of one and two, the safety and the social spaces. They kind of go hand in hand together. Yeah. And what they didn't want is just individual apartments. Yeah. The social space to be with other people was absolutely critical to the, the what people That's wanted. That's the from essence of it. That's the essence of it, yeah. And from that, they found that community safety was about being in numbers, being being with other people. So it was all wrapped up together. Then we had other things, obviously, like um, fully wheelchair accessible, uh, 24-7 on-call care, um, lots of signs of different. The only one on the list that I said, I really think this is going to be difficult to achieve, was the swimming pool. <laughs> So we kind of had you, to put you, that as You can understand why they are. Would like to have. <laughs> um, and so that that was really that that was where the specification came from. But it was also about how people wanted it to, to run in terms of um a very empowered approach. So not the kind of um you know, somewhat I suppose traditional um we do unto you um as happens quite often in sort of older person services mm. um or you're fortunate to get this um it's very very it was very much that the community community led community driven the community would decide they want to decide they want to be actively involved and, and running yeah. in effect um what they're doing but taking into account that people are aging have health issues etc so Tonic's role was really as a supporter, an enabler of that. Um, and that's what we've done. That's what we've kind of taken forward. And I was very much aware from my previous work with the co-housing network that doing community-led schemes can take a phenomenal amount of time. Um, the uh, groundbreaking older women's co-housing scheme in Barnet is phenomenal but it took them 18 years. And the number of women that passed... To open the doors. That's yes, in from the idea. From, from, yeah, from starting up to opening the doors. Wow. And the number, uh, a number of women in the group and in the founders of that passed away in that time. Because when you're talking older person's housing, mm. that is going to happen when you have the length of time. And I just felt, we don't have that time. We will lose a whole generation mm. of the people that need this now, the people that were living at a time when it was a criminal offence to be gay, um, people suffering electric shock treatment, um, right through to also the, the pioneers, the people who fought for all the LGBT rights yeah. and the people that have lived through um, you know, the HIV and AIDS epidemic, which yeah. is kind of like my generation. Yeah. Um, I felt, you know, I've got a blooming duty to get on with this and get on with it quickly. So um, that's why we decided to see if we could do an acquisitions route and partner with another housing association to acquire the right property that met all the criteria in the shopping list, 
but had the minus space. Minus the swimming pool. That, minus the swimming <laughs> pool, but had the space where we could really make that tonic vision work. so what do i see if i pay the, if i pay you a visit and, and i see the environment what 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 do i see and i guess then that leads me on to um what how does one access that you know what is the cost and criteria to you know to become a resident is that what you're called guest residents yeah we have residents they live there <laughs> and we have visitors and guests too um so what do you see? I suppose, first of all, as you kind of walk up to the door, you see a very iconic building. Yeah. We are very fortunate to have um, a Norman Foster, Foster and Partners um, designed building. It was a Section 106 as part of the Corniche. Yep. Um, and um, Bank you know, bank House is an entire tower. It's a I pass it every single day. Well, you know it well then. And, yeah. and so, it, you know, it's it's fantastic from that point of view. Um, it, for me, it's fantastic in that it is fully wheelchair accessible from street level. And as you know, Vauxhall, it's a pretty flat walk or, you know, or wheel <laughs> to, <laughs> to the highlights of Vauxhall. Um, and the whole building every bit of the building is fully wheelchair accessible so there's no parts you can't go you can't not go to your neighbor's flat yeah. you can't you know you can use the social spaces everything um and that was really really important in terms of um how the space works um we've got pretty much the whole of the first floor is the social space um the the building was um designed as an extra care scheme um through the 106 um, and that was very much driven through Lambeth Council but working with One Housing who was a partner um, partnered with St James in terms of yep. um, doing this um, and you know you know, to give credit where it's due it was um, some of the people in the development team at One Housing that took the care and attention to the detail to get a fantastic building working as a really gorgeous I have to say extra care scheme if you visited and came onto the first floor you'll come into kind of um, the lounge dining area we've got a bar it's actually got rainbow lights on it it had rainbow lights on the bar before we came in it was like it was waiting it was for meant us to be. <laughs> um, we uh, we've also got a kind of snug there we've got a first floor um, garden area that you can go from the bar all the furniture is movable so for the for the dining room we turn that into an arts workshop for the lounge we turn that into a cinema um, we can do lots of things within uh, you know a, a reasonable space but we're kind of quite creative with that and when Tonic um, came in part of our partnership with One Housing because they have the um, we have the top floor um, four stories from 11 to 14 but um, one housing have floors 2 to 10 um, which are um, extra care Lambeth residents and it's very much together working making it an LGBT affirming scheme but also making you know we had there were ex existing residents in there so it was working with the residents to reassure them that um, what we were bringing was going to just add value. We were not going to take anything away from anyone at all, but we would be adding things. And we worked with the residents. All the residents are always invited to everything we do. Um, you don't have to be a Tonic resident. You can be one housing resident. Um, and we, this was, we did 
a lot of this through those strange periods of lockdown and what we could and couldn't do. Um, and we created a, uh, an arts catalogue, like a gallery catalogue, and said, pick your favourite top ten. Um, and then um, we actually purchased those artworks and, you know, refurbished the living room because it was quite... I mean, it's so cool. Yeah. It was so cool you were featured in Vogue the other month, right? I mean, this is how... <laughs> Not me personally, well, well, our residents were, yeah. <laughs> I just think it's I just think it's marvellous and I'm, I, I desperately want to come and pay you a visit and hang out and yeah, cinema night. Really well, tonight is the bar, so we have our bar um, regularly open um, by by tonic staff and volunteers on a Thursday evening. As long as you've got Donna Summer as well on, 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 oh, on yeah. repeat, then I'm 100%. <laughs> in. Um, but could you give me some... Um, stats on the your residents, you know the, the um, age demographics. I, I I don't know how um, how you look at that or how you measure that. And you know clearly there's appetite and need for what you do beyond one building. Absolutely. So gosh, how do I break this down? Um, I suppose the the first. So we have over 500 people on our register of interest. The important part to say is that the properties that we acquired are shared ownership properties okay. on those top floors. 19 properties we, we acquired with a loan from the Mayor of London. Um, because we were new, we had no assets, no track record. Yeah. Um, accessing you know, private finance, etc. Yeah. was a bit of a no-no. Um, so, um, and the reason for that is not because we only want to do shared ownership, but um, it was that, um, that there is statute that we couldn't actually provide affordable rented housing without being a registered provider. And you can't be a registered provider without either having property or having a firm commitment for a scheme, as in funding, yep. etc., and a site. So you're in this complete chicken and egg scenario. So we're like, well, we've got to start somewhere. So shared ownership is a, a good place to start. Now we had to do our evidence base for that. We um, worked with partners, Stonewall Housing, Opening Doors and the University of Surrey to do a community-led piece of research in London which is called Building Safe Choices 2020. We had 624 um, older LGBT Londoners, it was London specific, respond to that. We started the project pre-COVID with some workshops which is really good but had to complete the survey you know online so actually getting those kind yeah. of responses from older people was quite amazing and that's a really important piece of research evidence because um, nobody had ever asked the questions before they'd asked about questions about housing and care needs but nobody ever asked how much can you afford so we could cross tabulate the information about what people were saying they wanted and actually what the range of people's current situation was and we got a really wide range in that um, in that a lot of people were owner occupiers I can't remember the exact st stats off the top of my head but it was over 50% were owner occupiers a lot of them owned outright because historically they were able to buy yeah. in the past um, we had a number of people um, then in, in private rented accommodation and a number of people in social rented accommodation. We yep. had a, a real mix. So from that, we could say that, well, there is the need for that shared, that shared ownership where people would actually sell their existing property 
as you mentioned, our properties are on the riverbank um, in Vauxhall and so have a high value. Yeah, with <laughs> views to die for. Yeah, so a lot of people are able to use the, the capital for, and the equity from their sale, but then to buy on a shared ownership basis. Um, to access more appropriate accommodation. And what is the average age of your resident? So we've got a real mixture. Um, our eldest resident is currently 87 and our youngest resident is 53. Um, we've um, seen a, um, a range really, a different... It, it, what we've seen with people moving in is mostly driven by a health issue, a health concern. Right. And that doesn't obviously only happen to you when you're 87, it can happen to you earlier in life. Um, the, the, the 53 is an interesting one because the age restriction on the property is 55 plus. Right. The age restriction on shared ownership for older people is 55. So we've actually got um, the, and a lot of LGBT couples, so we obviously, yeah. couples move in as well as singles, um, have big age differences. That is one of the things that's fairly usual. And so what we're finding is actually these age restriction policies can be quite discriminatory. So we have to, the, the lease has to be in the older partner's name and the younger partner in effect loses their housing rights unless they're married or in a civil partnership. So you mentioned earlier about all the different barriers yeah. that we have to face. It's we're learning with our community the situations and then the knack I think is that you know I'm fortunate enough to have learned the rules through my career yeah I now have to find ways around them and work you know cleverly with our lawyers and with the GLA to be honest in actually trying to find human Common solutions, sense solutions. Yeah. I think what you're doing is marvelous so where's the, what is the future for tonic housing because you know 500 um, applicants for 19 um, units is telling us all something. Very much. There's very much a huge interest, a huge demand. As you mentioned before, we get a lot of publicity, you know, as well as Vogue, kind of in the Times, we've got coverage with Comic Relief. Um, and always then our sort of phones and our emails and our interest is kind of like, you know, it's exactly what we want. We want people to know about us. We want people to know that there is choice out there and a, and a place for them. Um, our, our big... Um, what shall I call it? Well, for me, the the, the next mountain yeah. that I'm I'm so close to getting to the top of at the moment is getting RP registration, and the reason for that is then we'll be able to do rented properties, and that is where a lot of the need is. So some of the needs is in the shared ownership. There is a market need as well. Sure but there's a big need in the rented. And then we will have been much closer to Tonic's full vision of inclusivity. It'll also mean, of course, that we can then access grant funding and think about further development. Well, you said private capital for your first scheme was a bit of a no-no, I think, where you were, I mean, I think there's private capital out there, hopefully listening to this, that sees, you know, a supply and demand opportunity, if I can put it like that, whereby, um, you can accelerate. I think so. I think a lot of people now that we've, we've sh we, you can see it. You know, it's always difficult just to sell a vision and an mm. idea. Yeah. And you can talk about it. You can yeah. brand it. Yeah. You can, but 
but now you can actually come and Pop see along. it and feel it. Yeah. Meet the residents, chat yeah. to them, see what their experience is. And so I think it's very believable now in terms of where, where we've got to on this journey. So it's quite an exciting next stage. Um, so yes, if you're interested yeah. <laughs> in financing I, us, I'm not sure I can touch. fund your next, um, <laughs> your next, your next bigger project, but I, I, I might know a few people who most definitely could. Um, we're running out of time. Which is, which is really sad because I've got millions and millions and millions more questions to ask you. Um, but I have to dive into sort of wrapping this up. I'm, I'm so sorry. That's Maybe fine. we can do a round two with some of your residents as well. That'd yeah, be absolutely. Even more. They're more interesting than me. <laughs> um, we play quick fire questions. Are you up for it? Go on then. Are you sure? Yeah, I'll you probably be hopeless. Sure. <laughs> I'll try. No, you can't fail on these. Okay. This is the beauty of them. And I, I don't write them, I'm just reading them now. So, here we go. Classic films or modern blockbuster? I'll probably fudge it and be somewhere in the middle. Um, I think my favourite film ever is Mulholland Drive. Um, I've never seen it. Oh, you should. Do see it. And I was, I've just driven through LA and we, I wanted to go yeah. the whole of Mulholland Drive. I was so exhausted from doing the drive through LA that that got wiped off the list, unfortunately. But watch the film, it's really good. Okay, I watched the film. Beach walk or mountain hike? I would say both. I, you know, it's, it's all about being out in the fresh air at the moment. Probably at the moment, because I've not been so well, the beach walk is more likely um, and a a reasonable I went to Yosemite um, in California and I kind of did a reasonable amount of hiking but I've got to be a, a little bit careful not to overexert myself at the moment it's a hard choice isn't it mm. one's a walk one's a hike yeah not the same thing no. <laughs> um, ice cream or sorbet <sighs> depends what it is doesn't it uh, you know it's kind of like for like flavor what's your favorite flavor we start with that maybe Mm. Well, I'm I'm really like whatever grabs my attention on the, <laughs> on day. the day. I do like pistachio, let's say that, but I do also like granitas. So yeah, like a coffee granita is mm. pretty good. Okay, okay, okay. So neither. Yeah, so you can find me really <laughs> wishing. You're going it. down this the middle here. This is what here. happens when you interview a bisexual. It's like I like lots of different things. <laughs> <laughs> and why not? Um, and the final question is, um, and I always ask this question to everybody. So if you could own one property anywhere in the world, what would it be and what would you do with it? This is a really hard one because it's like, do I answer this as in, you know, my retirement? Well, in that case, I'd like a villa in Provence, please. Mm -hmm. Nice. Um, or do I answer it in terms of, you know, my housing hat on it's like oh my god what could i do if we had these kind of you know properties so you know if you know i i'll, I'll simplify it rather than just saying anything i was that well when the section 106 came up from bank house what would it have been like if tonic could have had that whole building from day one that would have been really amazing and quite a different journey to the partnership we, one we've been on so yeah I'll, I'll go with something that I know rather than just no you know, well say. said I think you'll get there sooner than <laughs> sooner than um, maybe even you think I can I, I think it's so obvious I think it's a great great thing that you're you're doing and um, I you know I, I can't I, 
I can't say well done enough. You know, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And and I could have asked a million questions, and um, it sounds like a lot of fun too. I'm sure. Um, so thank you for what you're doing, Anna, and and thank you for popping along and sharing the story. And, and maybe we can get that round two in sometime soon. That would be great. Thank you.